Would you take your Bible and turn once again to the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. 7 King, 2 Kings chapter 6, and I'm reading from the updated New American Standard Version. I have some props up here on the stage, and I'll give you a chance to look at one of them, and then... Here's another, and then this one. When I was a little boy, about age eight, my dad gave me a special Christmas gift. We had moved from the south to Phoenix, Arizona, 1958, into a little apartment on a canal bank. There was no yard to play in, and so I played on the bank of the canal, and there was a dead tree right by the canal, back of the apartment complex. And my dad gave me a, a hatchet, a small axe, so I could chop on that tree. That was far better than punching out Billy in the fourth grade. <laughs> and uh, today, I still have that axe. But one day I was chopping and I was hitting that thing as hard as I could. And the axe handle flew off toward the canal. I thought, oh my goodness, I, I'm in trouble. Because it was a gift and I was to take care of it. Apparently it was loose. I ran over there and there it was in the sand on the edge of the canal. Some of you have lost golf balls. And uh, some of you do that on a regular basis. Uh, like me. And so... I broke down and paid big, big time money at PGA Golf Store for a ball retriever so that I can go out as far as possible and get a lost golf ball. And then invariably, and Brother Jim, you'll understand what I'm saying here, it's never a Pro V1. But I retrieved that. But there was a, a young student in the Bible school of Jericho, and he was chopping away at some trees, and suddenly the axe handle flew off, and it was a bad situation. Would you stand as we honor the reading of God's inspired word? Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, go. Then one said, please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he we went with them and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees but as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. I read this, and it's kind of in the old language of, uh, of yesteryear, and I thought of the damsel in distress saying, Alas! <laughs> then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand 
and took it. You may be seated. God is calling us to be cutting-edge Christians. I looked up the meaning of cutting-edge, and then the more, uh, uh, I would say, industrial sense, it's the idea of being in modern development in the production or the design and the release of a product or an activity. But for Christians, to be in the cutting edge of the Lord is to be a sharp, penetrating force for good and godliness. It means that we make a dent and a difference in our world. Have you lost your cutting edge? Have you lost that, that penetrating sharpness that allows you to speak into situations, to pray for people, to witness for Christ, and by your very life and presence in their midst, you are literally cutting through the jungle. As a matter of fact, this machete is from Brazil. And believe me, I used it a couple of days ago. It does cut. And it was used particularly in the jungles of Brazil to cut trees and brush and all kinds of things and to take out a few reptiles. It's a machete, but it's not an axe. And so when that axe was lost, it was a serious situation. The Bible is used uh, by the people of God as his manual for success. It is the Word of God, and it is an example to us in all of these unusual stories. That's why 1 Corinthians says that the Old Testament has been given to us as an example, and that word means pattern. It means a form of godliness that we're to follow. And every story is that pattern as we learn about faith and obedience. Now, Unique challenges, first of all, demand that we be cutting-edge Christians. And, of course, disciples must overcome ignorance by learning and standing on the Word of God. Disciple means a learner. And if you have your Bible in print or digitally, I'd like for you to turn to two references, particularly... The first would be Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, and then Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5. Now, of course, Isaiah is uh, closer to us, and then we'll turn over into the New Testament to Hebrews, which deals a great deal with the Old Testament, by the way. Now, when they said, the place where we sit when these sons of the prophets, they were in the Bible schools, the training places where Elijah and Elisha trained the next generation. There were, that we know of in Scripture, four such Bible schools. Ramah, Gilgal, uh, Jericho, and uh, Bethel, or Bethel. And so these sons of the prophets were very concerned. And when they said, the place, look at verse 1. Now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. 
That literally in the Hebrew is the place where we are sitting before you, Elisha, hearing you teach. And so he was a teacher. The, the Word of God is in famine in the United States today. The prophet predicted there would be this drought and famine for hearing the Word of God. Very few read it at all. Uh, many discount its miracles. There are so many who look at the Word of God as having no real effect in modern life. But I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. And this is a prophetic picture of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also is a particular word to us about Christ in us, the Messiah who lives in us. And listen to this in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. That's a powerful picture of Jesus. That's exactly how he was. But Christ in and through us enables us to listen with the ear of a disciple. He will even awaken you in the morning. Uh, I was awakened 30 minutes before my alarm this morning by uh, the battery going dead in the smoke detector. And so I woke up, and, and instead of getting upset, I thought, well, praise the Lord, I've got more time to spend with Him. And so He awakens us, and we know certain things. As disciples, we are learners. We know. Now, what do we know? We know how to sustain the weary one with a word. Now, knowing this idea in the Hebrew language was the idea of knowing with certainty. Proverbs talks about the certainty of the word of truth. We know with discernment between good and evil. That's also in the meaning of that word. And we know with skill, which helps us to interpret the Bible and to know certain facts and principles and truth. And then, now believe it or not, this next word is also a part of the knowing, and it is to know in relationship. We know by watching and learning from others. In the very first century, toward the end of the first century, they put together a book or a manual called the Didache. And the Didache was not inspired scripture, but it was a manual for believing and behaving as part of the way of life. And they said, we are not in the way of death, we are in the way of life. And it gives us insight into how they lived in the early church. And in relationship, God calls us into His truth. But He awakens us to sustain people with certain words of encouragement. Are you ever around somebody who needs a word of encouragement? Of course you are. You do. And the very idea of a word, again, going back to the Hebrew language that this was written in, it is an urgent, 
hastening to speak because of a desperate need in someone's life. You never know what that person is going through. And God awakens you and you say yes to him. You surrender, you're available, and you speak the truth of Scripture. It may be one verse God gave you that morning. And what a difference it will make. Now why? Because our textbook is the Bible. Now turn over to Hebrews. Way over toward the end of the New Testament. And if you ever wonder the power, I remember hearing Billy Graham preach, and I got to lead in prayer one time at one of his crusades as a pastor, a young pastor. And I shared my testimony with him that when I went as a 13-year-old, when I got tired of chopping with axes, I went to a Billy Graham crusade. And he kept saying, the Bible says, the Bible says. And I realized I had never picked up the Bible to read it. And I shared this with the great Billy Graham. That as a result of that, I began to read and dig into the Word. But I didn't know the author of the book until two years later. And when I invited Jesus Christ to come into my heart and my life, into my mind as well. And then there was power in the Word. Listen to Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The idea of laying bare was used of a lamb's throat being exposed. His throat was cut. He was laid on the altar as a sacrifice to God. But also, an enemy in a battle would seek to take that sword. And if possible, he would seek to slash the throat. And the whole, the whole idea of this is when the Word of God comes, it is sharper than a machete, is sharper than a two-edged sword. And he cuts into our excuses. He cuts away at all of the disbelief, and with power, he penetrates to the deepest part of our being. Amen. And that's what happened with my, in my experience with the Word of God. Suddenly, when I came to know Christ and be redeemed, as the song said, by His blood, He penetrated and convicted me of sin and righteousness. And that's the power of the Word of God. And we need to teach that Word. It's a vital part of this ministry. A little girl went to uh, her very first day of school. And when she came home, her mom said, Well, did you learn anything today? And she said, Well, I guess not, because I've got to go back tomorrow. <laughs> and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. We show up, but we're not graduating until we are called home. We graduate to glory. And you graduate summa cum laude. 
Or, as my mother used to say, thank the Lordy. Thank the Lord. Redeemed at last. And finally home. But then, also, God's disciples overcome the limitations of the teaching of the Word. They were in a place that was too limited for them. And they came to the prophet, and they said, we need a bigger vision, we need to build something, because where they both lived and were taught was not big enough. And so they began a relocation program. Now, there are some people who put down the idea of uh, church buildings and capital campaigns and relocation and all of that is unspiritual. We need to give our money to missions, they say, and to ministries overseas and so forth. And we certainly need to uphold the missionary call. But th there are some places that are too limited because God has called this to be a forward operating base in enemy territory. We are surrounded by the enemy, and God has uniquely planted you right smack dab as an FOB, a forward operating base. This place is too limited right here in this uh, lovely room of this auditorium of this high school. I believe God is calling you to a new place. And we must not limit, the Bible says, Israel limited the Holy One. Psalm 78, 41. And that word means to scratch and scrape to pieces the vision of God. Don't do that. But here's the second big idea. An urgent appeal stirs us to meet these challenges in order to be cutting-edge Christians. There's an urgency. Behold, now. In other words, look, Elisha. You see the situation we're in. Now, this appeal is motivated in a certain way. Please, they said. In human thinking, we're motivated by what makes us mad, sad, or glad. And some of us have a righteous indignation about certain things or a burden for a particular need or ministry. But the issue is, what is God calling you to do? And by the way, when they said, Elisha, would you go with us? Anytime students ask the professor to go with them off campus, you know they mean business. But this appeal also includes a call for teamwork. In verse 2, they said, let us do this. And it was individual and united at the same time. And the verb in the original language indicates each one was cutting trees down to build this building. Now, this was not opulence, but they wanted excellence. They were not cutting down the cedars, the high-quality trees of Lebanon, but rather those jungle trees by the side of the Jordan River. And they said, we need to together do this. As most of you probably know, if you know me from the past, you know I am a lover of history, and particularly military history. A friend of mine gave me this unique little device. It was the kind used in World War II the night before D-Day. 
to paratroopers of the 101st Airborne. Each one was given this cricket. And so when they were out in the dark and trying to regroup in order to know who was on their side and not a German, they would click and then have a responsive click. Just like this is. This is the one right here. And God calls us. As a matter of fact, we signal to each other. Look at Luke chapter 5, if you would. Or just listen. Jesus is doing an early miracle. He is calling the fishermen to a greater calling than just fishing for fish. But he gives them an example of what they're to do and expecting the power of God at work. A miraculous catch of fish right there after they fished fruitlessly all night. And uh, the, they drew in their nets so many fish, the boats were about to sink. Now look at Luke chapter 5, verse 6. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. And their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. Uh, way beyond their limit. And yet the Lord has no limit. They signaled. To come and help. The same wording as in the vision to Paul. To come over to Macedonia and help and bring the gospel to Europe. They signaled to their other partners. And they said, come over and help us. Now I want you to look at that phrase. It's very significant. Come and help. And it's the idea, literally in the Greek language of taking hold together with someone else. God is calling all of us in teamwork to come together to take hold of the vision, to take hold of what God is calling you to do. You don't need a clicker to respond. This appeal results in a commission. So Elisha said, all right, go. Let's do it. Earlier he had told the sons of the prophets, probably the same ones, to not go. When they wanted to search for Elijah, because God's Uber had taken him home. Maybe not an Uber. A whirlwind, a chariot of fire, took him to heaven without dying. What a, what a miracle. But when God says go, where does he say that the most powerfully in Scripture? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19. Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. That's to all of us. We're to go, not just stay, but to go. An old country preacher in North Carolina used to say it like this. Not good grammar, but great theology. Ain't hardly nobody ever been saved what ain't been went after. Now, I want you to memorize that so you can share that with your friend. Ain't hardly nobody ever been saved what ain't been went after. Well, God can do whatever he wants to do, but 
He says, go and go. Dr. Keith Idle, a friend of mine, professor of missions, on September 10th, was in an elevator at a hotel in New Jersey. That's not this year, but the night before or the morning of 9-11. He had stayed in that hotel, and as Keith stepped into the elevator to go down, there were some mid, mid, uh, middle, uh, middle Eastern men talking, and they suddenly changed their language when this American, Keith Idol, stepped into the elevator. He had a strange sense in his spirit that something just wasn't quite right. And then the World Trade Center was hit, and the other attacks. And when he saw pictures of some of the terrorists led by Mohammed Atta, who trained up here in Venice to fly an airplane, he recognized those men as the ones in the elevator with him that very morning, on their way to board planes, bound for their targets. And Keith Idle said this, I wonder if that stirring in the spirit was God trying to tell me to witness to them about Jesus Christ, the only hope of the world. But he did not. Who knows what would have happened? Well, this appeal is for a leader. They wanted the man of God to go with them. The Bible says, remember your leaders, consider their conduct and imitate their faith. Thank God you have godly leaders here leading in worship, administration, preaching the word of God. I believe God is calling us to have good leaders and to pray for them. Uh, it may not be an issue of miracles, but God is not calling you to imitate charisma, but rather faith. Every leader of God has faith, real faith. But you have to have leaders. You may have a beautiful car, latest model, great paint job, lots of options. The carburetor is carburetting. The alternator is alterating. The radiator is radiating. But you're standing still unless that driver is in the seat, turns on the ignition, and steers the car in the right direction. That's what godly leaders do. And we need to pray for them. And then this appeal attempts a project. It was a tough project. They had a lot to do. Chuck Swindoll once said, whenever there is a grand piano to move, someone is always willing to carry the stool. <laughs> Isn't that true? But we need heavy lifters in this church. God's called you out. You're some of the greatest people I've ever known. You're some of the sharpest, friendliest, People who love the Lord and the Word of God. We need heavy lifters in the kingdom these days. If the axe is dull, Ecclesiastes 10.10 says you can't get your work done. You're not successful. So we need a sharp edge on the axe. 
Amen. Now, third, unforeseen temptations pressure us to lose our cutting edge. You see that in verse 5. The axe head flew off. It's not because he threw it away. It was loose and it fell off. And it went right down in that Jordan River. Now, we don't know if it was uh, at flood time or in a drought. And I've, I've seen the Jordan extremely low because droughts are very common in that part of the world. Uh, on the Internet, not long ago, there was a drought in Texas. And someone humorously wrote this, how dry is it in Texas? And here's the answer. It's so dry that, uh, now I'm not Johnny Carson, okay. It's so dry that the Baptists are baptizing by sprinkling. The Methodists are using wet wipes. The Presbyterians are giving rain checks. And the Catholics are praying that the wine will turn to water. That's how, how dry it is. Well, the problem was, he, they couldn't see the axe head. It was iron. It had gone right to the bottom. And the Jordan is always muddy. Deuteronomy 19.5 said, In case axe heads flew off and killed someone, there was a provision for that. Exodus 22.14 and 15 talks about borrowed animals, and the same idea of borrowed tools is if it's lost, that person has to repay in multiple ways the person who owned the implement or the animal. And so the student says, alas, oh no, it was borrowed. I'll have to repay who owns that iron implement. Here's the problem for us. We tend to lose the cutting edge. And we hit hard, we're chopping away, we're chopping away, and suddenly we realize we've lost that cutting edge. We've got, gotten jarred a lot, wood on wood. We have chopped away and maybe missed our mark. There's movement without might, energy without effectiveness, and we have bruised hands, and maybe even hurt people around us. The Bible says, hold fast what you have. And so lastly, unusual steps must be taken to regain the cutting edge. And I want to encourage you to resist man's approach. I, I'm, I'm impressed with this young student because he didn't make up excuses. He didn't... Uh, tried to hide the fact that the axe was lost. He went straight to the man of God and was honest. But here's the problem. Invariably, uh, if Americans were living in Israel, you know what they would have done? They would have invented an axe head retriever <laughs> with a magnet on the end that was waterproof. If there had been Americans then, if it was me, I would have waded into the water unless it was up to my head, and I would have been trying to feel around on the bottom, you know. Maybe my feet can touch that axe head. That's what I would have done. 
A lot of people today would have calendared an axe-chopping renewal conference. They would bring in specialist choppers to motivate those who are not good at chopping. They would have polished the handles. They would have made sure there were sharpeners available in the arena at kiosk. And they would have brought in a top-notch chopper, axe man, to motivate everybody to go out and do better, and then become a reality show, axe men for Jesus. <laughs> right? Man's way. But here's God's way. God's way is to say, bring the problem to me. I fix things. Have you ever realized, that doesn't sound very biblical, does it? But God says, I fix things. I made things. I can do something in your life that you can't even imagine. But God does exceeding abundant above all we could ask or think. He even made the little mayfly with colored wings that no one ever sees. And that little thing dies within a few hours. And yet this beautiful, wonderful creator made that little insect. How much more does he care about your problem? I was hurrying, trying to get ready this morning. I tried to spend as much time in the Word and studying, and I put it in my little one-contact lens. And then I thought, something's not right. It's not that I, you know, don't see well, but I knew something was amiss. I'm looking, where, where did it go? Where's that little lens? Looked in my eye. It's not in my cont. It's not in my eyeball. Looked in the mirror. And I sat down. And I said, Lord, I've got, I've got to find this contact to go preach so I can read the Word. And I looked down. The contact was laying on my shoe. <laughs> it had fallen out. God is concerned about these things. God is concerned about your axe head. But it's not by human dredging at the bottom of the river because then we will say, look what I did. I found it. That's why God's plan was for the man of God to take a stick and throw it in the river. We need to remember, though, the sight of the loss. Where did it fall? What were you doing when it fell? And you and I need to go back to that time. When did I lose that cutting edge? Was it in the muddy river of liberal cynicism? Was it in the swamp of worldly activities? Or the shallows and the mud of lust? Where did you lose that axe head? You need to ask God to show you where, when, and how. There's a place, a time, and a way. Then recognize the simplicity of the cross. That word stick is also in the Hebrew, a tree. A tree. I don't know if he cut down a tree and threw it in. Uh, it was some kind of wood. God's way is wood. That's why the cross is so important. Foolishness to the world, but it is the way of life for us. As a matter of fact, even Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, in Aramaic, they called it Nazareth. 
Natser is branch in Hebrew. And the Bible in the Old Testament uses that I'm familiar with eight designations for the Messiah. And one of them is branch. A branch has sprung forth, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Wow, a living branch thrown into the sea of death on the cross, but raised by the magnetic power of God. Jesus is alive, but he died on the cross for your sins because all of us have lost everything and will be permanent lost losers in hell if we do not come to him. And so respond with faith, obedience, and repentance. When the axe head floated, Elisha said to that young man, Take it for yourself. Take hold, the Bible says. There is no one who calls on your name, Lord, who arouses himself to take hold of you. The prophet said in Isaiah 64, 7. God has written a blank check, but you've got to endorse it and cash it. You've got to say, Lord, by faith, I am claiming all that you have for me. By faith, I believe Jesus died, forgave my sins, now lives in me, and that he awakens me every morning as a disciple. Take it by faith. I close with this story. Duncan Campbell was one of the last soldiers of Britain to be wounded in one of the last cavalry charges in modern history in World War I. And as he lay in the blood, he said, Oh God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. God saved his life. He was on fire for the Lord. He was mightily used in the Hebrides revival. One of the most amazing moves of God there in the Scottish area. But as he got older, and then he began to teach in a Bible school, the sons of the prophets. He began to doubt the inerrancy and the authority of the word of God. He had lost the cutting edge. This mighty man of God. And one day his teenage daughter came in happy and singing. And she said, oh, daddy, isn't Jesus wonderful? He said, yes, but... Why would you say that? She said, oh, I just had a wonderful hour with him. And then she put her arms around her dad. She said, oh, daddy, why is it not with you and Jesus as it used to be? How long has it been since you knelt and led a lost soul to Jesus, she said. He said, well, I've got to go. I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> and so he, he got up under conviction through his daughter, preached a sermon, and came back and decided to go meet God. He knew where the axe head had fallen out. And as he knelt down in repentance, his young daughter came and knelt beside him. And she said, Daddy! Go through with God. And he did. And his last words on this earth were, I fight, but not like one who beats the air. From 1 Corinthians 9.26.